Oh man. Okay. So I am going to be very uncomfortable in this conversation. You know, we've talked kind of around the nod and how how you developed it and sort of how it stands apart from the tarot tradition. But mm-hmm. what does that actually look like? We're going to be rolling out artwork slowly as we're we're getting closer to publication. But I want I just want to talk more generally about the function of the cards and the nod versus what you would see in something more traditional. All tarot decks have different kinds of art that are dealing with different aspects of tarot symbology. The thought deck has very specific colors and patterns and figures that you might not see in Rider weight or, or different tarot decks, but they all have essentially it's the same cards overall maybe have switched some things around in different versions but you know you're always going to see the fool the hanged man the magician ace of cups the the ten of wands uh, all of these things are are common across tarot and yeah. with the nod we are completely leaving that system behind and we're looking at new sets of symbols i guess i want you to talk a little bit about what some of those symbols are or the things that we're drawing from here that would feel very different to somebody who picks up uh, the nod as opposed to a tarot deck. What what are some of the ideas or symbols in the nod that might be surprising to somebody just picking it up? One thing that was very important to me when coming up with the symbols in this deck is feminism. Some people might be wondering, how is it that this guy is saying he designed this, this deck and he's not the guy who's drawing it? However, all of the popular tarot card decks that, were, that we've spoken of so far, well, the ones that I'm most familiar with are the Crowley's Thoth deck and Wyatt's Ryder Wyatt deck. The people who designed them, Crowley or Wyatt, weren't the people who drew it. For both of them, it was, it was a woman significantly, who painted those decks for them. And, and there is an argument that that, that is in, important in terms of the self versus other, you know, stepping outside of yourself aspect of things and that we will be using for this, where I've written down what I think this card looks like and it's important that somebody else draws it and then I reinterpret that. Tarot formula, the, the set 78 card deck, major and minor arcana that we've been talking about it definitely acknowledges gender to a huge degree but it is a early 20th century or more so late 1800s victorian idea of gender that doesn't work now i mean there there was a lot of there was a lot of feminism involved in occult circles at that time, the suffragettes in in England, these were all English people, uh, such as Florence Farr and Annie Horniman. Feminism was a part of what was going on, but even that feminism, it's nowhere near the feminism that we have today. We've just are in a different place with it. So I wanted to update the symbols used to reflect the feminism of today 
even if just through my own imperfect view of it. So I included a lot of images uh, in cards such as birth, current, mother, that, that are powerful feminine images. At the time that, that the tarot card deck that we, that we know of was being developed, like they didn't even know about Samaria that much. Religion starts in Egypt for them. And that is a masculine solar worshiping religion. So men rule. They, they, they were all Orientalists, so they were very into tapping into, into Taoism. The central tenets of Taoism address gender in that yang this, is this active force and yin is receptivity. And for them, that means men do stuff and women don't. That, that doesn't reflect what our culture is today. And we've progressed in our ideas of, about just about religious symbols and the development of religion to the point where like the first thing worshiped isn't even a, a man. There's a relatively recent idea that the first thing worshiped predates humanity, that Neanderthals begin what grows into religion. This is before it even actually is religion. We were worshiping this bear goddess which we can know very, very little about. All we know is that Neanderthals had burial practices and anthropologically, that is our first evidence of any kind of religious life. And that these burial practices involved specific placement of bare skulls. From that, we can look at the last vestiges of this religion, which occur in the northernmost parts of our globe, Scandinavia and um, Siberia, we can still see bear cults, which fascinatingly function very similar to, to old, old, old Judaism. The, the bear becomes this kind of scapegoat Azazel figure, a, a sin eater. In the, the bear cults in these places, they, they take a bear cub from the wild and they raise it in their culture, in their society for a period of time as a human child. And then at the end of it, they kill that bear. And the bear, in gratitude for being treated as a human, being accepted as part of that culture, takes the sins of the culture to heaven uh, in, the, in these religions. It's, it's, it's uh, the Milky Way or the Aurora Borealis, which again, still has resonances down through the Greeks. This is where we get the idea of a Hyperborean culture that exists at the back of the North Wind, where there's a tropical paradise of superhumans. But the, the crux of this is that the first god was a lady, a, a, a bear goddess. It is until we get to Sumeria and Enki and Enlil come about that we start getting masculine gods who behave in a completely different way rather than like, oh, I feel bad because I knew I, I, I did this thing that made me feel bad and that must be sin. So to expiate that, I go through this bear ritual. Instead, it's God has said, you, you get commandments. God has laid down this law, what the Sumerians called uh, May, the May tablets. And if you transgress against that law, 
you are damned. But even in Sumerian religion, after a while you develop uh, Inanna, bringing this feminine spirituality back into things, and she steals those tablets from the, the boy gods. The priests of Inanna uh, were the first people to come up with the idea that through religion or through a spiritual life, you can gain eternal life, that you can move beyond your sinful objective reality and live on in, a, in memoriam or go with that bear God and live in heaven as a symbol. And these are also the people who first come up with writing. Although even that's being called into question now as we get into the Vinca culture, but that's so new, we haven't been able to study it that much. And with COVID, that's completely arrested. So nobody really, there's this big debate as to whether the symbols found around the Vinca culture are writing or just pictures. We're always getting new information and like the, the history of our culture is, can be sort of endlessly granulized where, where we can keep finding out more information. We can keep reassessing things that we already know and we can keep looking for a start to something, but we're always in the middle of figuring that out. And yeah. we're, we're never at a point where we fully understand this is where this came from. This is where we came from. Mm -hmm. We can only have these ideas about it. Something that I think got misinterpreted or interpreted in a, in a really rigid way of masculine being male and feminine being female as this mutually exclusive thing that happens. And I think now we understand the masculine and the feminine a lot more as components of human being that aren't exclusive to a particular like biological gender, um, which, you know, and even that is questionable at this point. So if we're, we're thinking less about gender and sex and more about this internal energy that we all possess and that has facets that I think we end up applying to these sort of biological differences but ultimately, that's just us kind of saying like, oh, well, this, this is associated with male and this is associated with female, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily have to be that. They don't. And, and it's interesting because if we look back to these cultures that are the beginning of the dogmatic male-centered religions that, that we think of them being, the priests of Inanna were eunuchs. They were moving from their assigned at birth masculine gender and engaging in a proto form of gender reassignment surgery. The, the pharaohs often in, in rituals presented as female. Some of the pharaohs were females who, Hatshepsut right. is a lady pharaoh, but she put on a beard because she was more than the gender assigned at birth. Some Native American cultures had five genders. Mesoamerican cultures, cross-dressing and, 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 and gender fluidity was the province of priests and, and divine representatives. It even filters down to the most hyper-masculine dogmatic religions in that that's kind of where we get the idea that priests should be celibate. 
they're raising themselves above their assigned masculine gender at birth and, and ignoring that, which has become a completely different thing now. But so anyways, this is reflected in cards like, like current. Current, I would say, is touching on that, that most ancient pre-human Neanderthal religion, uh, which I didn't even realize when I first started coming up with that card. I thought I was just referring to Callisto and the legend of, of the great bear Big Dipper being in the sky. And then as I found out about this, I was like, oh no, that, that is this. She is the bear goddess. My theory is that that, that goddess, that the, this first divine being comes from people being afraid of the dark. For those people at that time, the apex predator was the cave bear. So the unknown, which lives in the darkness, gets personified in this symbol of the cave bear. And that echoes through time, though diminished into this image of a woman fleeing with her child to protect it from being vengefully killed. And that eventually results in their elevation to being constellate, being placed in the stars. Yeah, that, that's one thing that I try to bring in a lot in this deck is uh, a more modern concept of of gender. What are some other uh, symbols that um, really jump out as distinct in this new tradition that we're establishing as, a, as opposed to, to previous divinatory traditions? Oh, you want to talk about a real controversial one that comes up a couple of times? Yeah. Okay. There's one guy who appears in the deck a bunch of times. The most accessible thing to call him is Hades, or the king of the underworld. The symbol that we're using is, is much larger and includes many different traditions of that figure. But, and again, when I first started developing the deck, this was not as vital a symbol, but it has become supremely vital. The Lord of the Underworld is, we can just call him Hades for, for right now. Uh, in Greek mythology, Hades, who, Hades just means the secret god. It's a word that they use because they were afraid to say his real name, which is Pluto which is riches. This guy was in charge of anything under the world, anything under the earth. So commonly we think of him as the God of death because we put the dead in the ground. They put the dead in the ground, but his name is riches because gold comes from the ground. So he's also the king of money, but not split off from Mercury, who is a fluid God, which is the God of commerce, money moving, Pluto is the god of banking, stockpiling that money, buried treasure, which at the time there were no banks, the way you kept your money is you bury it. But then it, even further, food comes from the grain, grows out of the ground. So that's another way in which he's the god of riches. The, the legend of, of Persephone is about a goddess who goes down to the underworld and steals the riches from the secret king, which on one level is she takes the gold, but really from an agrarian culture standpoint, she becomes the goddess of spring. That's a, you know, she's, it's winter when she's gone and it's, it's spring when she comes back, though for the Greek growing season, it's summer when she's gone because that's when everything dies for them. Their growing seasons were spring and fall. 
but she brings the food back from under the earth. That's why she becomes a spring goddess. Now, our current president is definitely the secret king who is the god of stagnant wealth. So this has become a symbol that is very important in our culture right now. And this deck interacts with them in a, in a, in a very specific way, a proserpinic way. That, that process is one thing that you can see in several different cards. He's in forgetting uh, and, of course, wealth. And I've updated the concept of him. He wears a helmet that has fiber optic cables that are trailing off to the ceiling because he's tapped into the internet. Pluto right now spends most of his time tweeting. And we need to rediscover those Ellicinian mysteries and steal that wealth that has stagnated under his earth. We, yeah, so that's one big symbol that I think is happening in this deck. The one, the one that sticks out to me the yeah. most is uh, there. There is a card that features Godzilla. Yeah, um, which uh, I, I think is uh, you know th- there are elements of more like pop culture things throughout this deck, but a lot of them are you know kind of trying to dig more into mythology. But there are some elements of sort of modern mythologies that pop up. So Godzilla appearing is uh, one that is really vivid to me. And I believe that's that, that card is radiation, right? Exactly. Where did that come from? That's a card of, of rapid change, mutation, like Godzilla. And an interesting thing that happens in the legend of Godzilla is, you know, he first shows up and all he does is destroy Tokyo. He's the bad guy. And we can, and this is explored so wonderfully in the Lionsgate films. Godzilla fights those Mutos and, and it's just destroy San Francisco. But then the next Godzilla movie, King of Monsters, a worse thing shows up. It's Ghidorah. And so we actually have to call Godzilla now. The rapid mutation, the thing that we're afraid of, the, the, I mean, the atomic bomb, Godzilla is an avatar of the atomic bomb in all of these movies. Now we're calling up that Chernobyl monster to protect us from the worst thing. Although rapid change is terrifying, change that you're not in control of is terrifying. Sometimes it's the thing you need to step beyond. And you know, I haven't thought about this till now, but that is what's happening right now. That is cops and people shooting each other in the streets. It is an election that we don't even know how to enact the election anymore. We are in the age of Godzilla in a huge way. So that's what that card is to me right now. Joe Biden. <laughs> I, yeah, sure. Well, both of them. We've shied away from it. But boy, if at the beginning of the election, if I had to pick, pick which of the Godzillas I wanted, Marianne Williamson, the craziest, worst choice of president, would at least be a kind, loving Godzilla rather than a monster smashing everything or an idiot drooling on us, you know? Like, yeah. But they're all Godzilla. There was no choice that wasn't Godzilla. Right. But at least Marianne Williamson was more of a Mothra. Mothra's monster form is a healing form in the latest Godzilla movie, Godzilla dies and then comes back to life because Mothra gives her life for him, which again, echoes back to that 
dare goddess, the she bear that that gives her life so that we all can keep on going. As we go forward and create more of these videos, we're going to be talking about all of the cards eventually and some some more of these ideas around everything that we've been talking about so far. So keep keep joining us to learn more about this as we learn more about it um, as we as we go. Cool. All right. Thanks for watching. Give us a like and subscribe to The Nod on YouTube. You can also find us as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And if you want to stay up to date with the Noetic Oracular deck and be notified when it's available for pre-order, be sure to sign up for our mailing list. The link is in the description.